Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, dear nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, here with my last episode before becoming a goddamn full-time podcaster and no longer having to dedicate every moment I'm not at my 40-hour-a-week job to do this gig. And oh, oh, am I so looking forward to a bit of actually lazing around. What's that? I don't have to wake up every Sunday morning at 6am to do a bit of cleaning before sitting down to write 4,000 words and still try to run life errands. 
Uh, what will that feel like? Anyway, sorry, just a bit of complaint catharsis coming at you, but I'm done now. We're back with the Aeneid, with Aeneas, and the people he's left in his wake. I really hope you enjoyed last week's episode of my discussion with my friends of Ancient History Fangirl. It was so much fun to record. It helps bed wine and our friends, but for real, it was just super fun. You should definitely check out their podcast too. It's really similar to mine when it comes to feminist rants and curse words, but it's just ancient history in general. They're currently in Rome, but are going to be expanding far beyond. Well, where we last left the Aeneid, poor, poor Dido. I won't harp on it any further because, well, I've spent an awful lot of episodes on her at this point. But for real, what a tragedy, and Aeneas is a true asshole. But where we last left him, he was sailing off from Carthage in secret, in the night, trying to leave without anyone noticing, without getting any attention or having to answer any more questions about his decision. It was cowardly, to say the least. This is episode 93, a dramatic ship race, and someone lands in blood and dung. Aeneas and the Trojan refugees sail from Carthage, the wide open sea before them, nothing in sight but the two shades of blue, the sea and the sky. Behind them, though, they can see what they've left in their wake in Carthage. The fire of Dido's funeral pyre shines brightly, flames licking the sky and brightening everything around it. They don't know what the fire is for, but in their hearts, they absolutely know what the fire is for. Aeneas knows what he's done to that poor woman, and though he doesn't know it directly, there's also what his mother, Venus, did to the poor woman. The Trojans don't dwell, though. They turn their eyes away from the fire burning horribly back in Carthage and set their sights on their future, the blue sky and the sea, and what lays beyond it. But only moments later, the sky changes drastically. The blue, darkened storm clouds gather overhead. They call to Neptune, asking what he has in store for them. The ship's pilot calls to Aeneas, telling him that they won't survive the storm that's coming at them now, not even if Jupiter himself has promised Aeneas. No, he says, they mustn't seek Italy just yet. It's too far. They'll have to sail too much of the open seas in this horrible storm and its rushing winds. For now, the pilot tells Aeneas, they must land on Sicily and wait it out. Sicily, you see, is familiar. They have Trojan friends there. It's where Aeneas buried his father on their way before they ever landed on Carthage. Sicily, of course, is just across the water from Carthage. They reach it quickly, landing in the ports and securing their ships as quickly as they can, trying their best to beat back the storm and avoid the brunt of it. They're greeted by a man named Acestes, the one of Trojan blood, who welcomes them to his land. It seems it's been a year since they were last there, burying Anchises, Aeneas' father, and such an anniversary requires a celebration. Aeneas lays out what they're to do, lots of praying and gifts on the grave and the like. He makes a point of calling out their household gods brought all the way from Troy, a notable point he will continue to make, laying out the future Roman world. 
He then announces the funereal games that will be performed, the traditional celebration of life and death, athletic competitions. Those of you who've been listening to my readings of Homer will recognize this from the last episodes of the Iliad. It's not a coincidence. So they begin to perform the rites around the grave mount of the great Anchises, with ritual goblets and flowers and pronouncements of grief, but also of their future plans. Aeneas, notably, speaks of reaching the river Tiber, the river that runs through what will become Rome. And while Aeneas performs all of these rites, a snake appears from the altar. It winds its way through the offerings, tasting the food and even the wine as it slithers along before returning to the grave itself. Aeneas is amazed. This only increases his fervor in performing these rites for his father. He sacrifices the necessary animals, a lot of animals. It's always a depressing number of animals that need to be sacrificed for these things. And they continue the celebration, which lasts for nine days. On the ninth day, the games begin. As a means of one-upping Homer himself, these funereal games also include a race on the sea. Each of the men competing selects one of the Trojan ships and prepares it for the race. Menestheus takes the ship called the Whale. A man named Gias takes the Chimera. Sergestus takes the Centaur. And Cloanthus takes the Scylla. And yes, I read you that list simply so I could read the names of the ships, because I mean, those are some badass ship names. Scylla, though, seems a little ominous to me. I mean, would I want to name my ship after a wildly deadly sea monster? Seems like you're just asking for trouble there. They set off on the race, each ship having different qualities, keeping it in the lead or otherwise. Gias, sailing the Chimera, takes the lead and keeps it. He passes the halfway mark, and they turn to make their way back towards the starting point, hoping for the win. Another man is doing the steering, though. Menetes, and Gias calls to him to keep close to the shore for speed, but Menetes is worried there are hidden rocks and guides the ship further into the sea, making Gias very angry. Eventually, he tosses Manites overboard completely, steering the ship back closer to the shore like he'd intended. Now, Manites survives this? Not to worry. He's very old and waterlogged by his clothes, though, but he eventually swims to the surface and makes his way to a nearby rock. And yes, the Trojans laugh at him as he does. Nice people, all of them. Gias continues on, but in the end, this has delayed him further. Weird, I know, throwing someone overboard could actually cause more trouble than it's worth. Meanwhile, Menestheus, captaining the whale, is trying his best not to be the last. He's neck and neck with Sergestus, who's captaining the centaur. Sergestus, though, gets too close to some of the rocks near the shore and hits them, shattering oars and getting stuck in the jutting rocks. Menestheus then is able to overtake the centaur. Next, he reaches Gias in the Chimera, no longer in first place because, again, he threw his pilot overboard. Menestheus quickly passes him in the whale, and he's only left with Scylla to overtake now. Menestheus gets closer and closer to the Scylla, but Cloanthus is thinking ahead. He makes a promise to the gods of the sea. Cloanthus calls upon Phorcus and the Nereids and Neptune himself. 
He tells them that if he's allowed to win this ship race, he'll bring a snow-white bull to the sea's edge, sacrifice it, and give to the sea gods all they could ask for in return for this win. That is all it takes. The gods of the sea push Cloanthus into the port, and he is announced the winner by Aeneas. Gifts are given to everyone, though the most to the winner. And yes, much like Homer, we are told the gifts, but who has the time? The Aeneid is slow-moving enough, so gifts were given. And then there's Sir Gestus. He doesn't get much in the way of prizes for getting stuck in some rocks. They all laugh at him when he finally got his ship into port, but Aeneas did give him what he'd promised. A woman. Yes, a woman named Foley, the mother of twins. Ugh, Sir Gestus. Sometimes this shit is just so fucked up. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. 
I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With the ship race out of the way, the Trojans proceed to the various other funereal games they'll compete in on this anniversary of the burial of Aeneas' beloved father and Kizzy's. And no, I won't trouble you with too many details on the remaining games, don't you worry. Just know there was first a foot race where one guy did slip in some blood and land face first in blood and dung, so you know, that's a fun little tidbit. Then there was boxing, next archery, then Aeneas calls upon his son, Ascanius, who'd put together something with the rest of the younger boys. They ride towards the gravesite on their horses and perform some fancy horse footwork, greatly impressing everyone who was there watching. It's described as all very Trojan, very honoring of Troy, and I would add, yet another emphasis on their Trojan heritage and their household gods in preparation for that eventual founding of Rome. Oh, how Rome is meant to be. The best of the best. And with the horse dance of Ascanius and the other boys, the celebrations come to an end. But a certain goddess has been watching, and she's planning to change the fortunes of the Trojans. Juno's putting in place a plan to fuck with them further. She sends the goddess Iris down to Sicily to interact with the Trojans. You see... The Trojan women have been mourning and kizzies in their own way, on the beach by the ships, away from the men entirely. Iris appears there as a well-respected Trojan woman, and speaks with the others. Oh, she tells them, will we ever get to Italy? We're all so tired of the traveling, she complains loudly. Then she tells them she's had a vision of Cassandra herself that they're not meant to keep traveling, that they won't ever reach Italy. Instead, they should found their prized city right there. They must ask Acestes to let them found it on his land. She goes on like this, but she doesn't convince the women. One of the other Trojan women who's been listening to this disguised Iris points to her and calls to the other women. She isn't one of us. She's a goddess, she says. Not only does this woman recognize Iris as divine, but, she says, the woman she's impersonating is in her tent. She's just right over there. She's only just been seen in her tent and couldn't possibly be standing right before them now saying all these things. Be better, Iris. With that, Iris lets go of the game and flies off, away from the Trojan women and into the sky, leaving behind a rainbow in her wake. Which the women take as an omen and begin to burn the place down. Because my god, does this book hate women? They see the rainbow as an omen of their fates, that the gods, specifically Juno, is against them, that they're bound for endless traveling and wars, and that they're all screwed because of it. So they begin to burn the ships, the camps, everything. Fire everywhere. The intention is, if all of this is burnt, they'll have to found the city there, instead of traveling further, But the way it's portrayed is, the women go nuts and they burn the place down. There's so much fire that the rest of the Trojans see it from where they've been playing their little games, and the first to arrive to try to put out the flames and stop the women is Ascanius. 
He calls to them to stop, but the fire is out of control. Aeneas and the others arrive to do the same. They begin to try to quench the flames, however they can. They work and work, but the fire has gotten too big, too quickly. The ships are burning up, the camp is burning up, all they have is going up in flames. Finally, feeling defeated, Aeneas prays to Jupiter, and before he's even finished calling to the god for help... A black storm cloud appears over the beach, and the rain pours down heavily, torrentially, extinguishing the flames and leaving the Trojans to examine the wreckage. Fortunately, many of the ships are able to be salvaged, though they lose some, leaving Aeneas to question whether they should bother continuing to try to reach Italy, with so much endless ruin falling on them or whether they should just try to found a city there in Sicily, abandoning their plans and falling directly into Juno's trap. Which, I mean, if he was going to get that close to that decision, how did it not happen when he was supposedly in love with a woman whose entire life was being ruined by his decision to leave? I mean, just another big fuck you to Aeneas. He consults one of his Trojan friends, Nautes, who suggests that whoever can't continue on stays there in Sicily, and with Acestes, who's been there long before they arrived, they'll all found another great city. Any old men who can't go on, women who are over-traveling all the time and don't want to continue further, anyone who doesn't want to make their way on to Italy can stay there in Sicily. And before you go thinking Aeneas is the type of strong, important leader that could make a decision like this himself, just wait, because while Aeneas is debating what he's going to do, whether he's going to continue on and leave some behind, like Nautes' plan, or some other option, when the night is at its darkest, his father's ghost appears to provide a little guidance. The ghost of Aeneas's father, Anchises, appears before his son to give him a little help. Oh, Aeneas, how the fall of Troy weighs on you, Anchises begins, pointing out the very obvious. Jupiter sent me here from the underworld, he tells his son, because he's worried about you. He feels bad. You should take Nautes' advice, Anchises tells Aeneas, and travel on with only the strongest of people. I mean, he says men, but I'm going to say people, to Italy. When you arrive there, you'll have to defeat a very powerful race of people, and you need only the strongest to help you. But before you continue on, he tells Aeneas, you must first travel down to the underworld and meet me there, not in Tartarus, but in Elysium. If you kill a bunch of black sheep, he advises Aeneas very specifically, You will have a guide. When you get there, you will see all of your family from Troy. And then, quite unceremoniously, Ankizis just says, Okay, bye! Lots going on here. See ya! Okay, not entirely like that, but he does basically say goodbye at a completely random point in the conversation, and it's very weird. And with that, he's gone. This is what Aeneas needed— He's been given instructions to become exactly like Odysseus in every way, and oh my gosh, did Virgil have any unique ideas? He decides he will take Nautes' advice. He announces this and works with Acestes to get everyone who will remain there nice and settled. 
They will have a great city all together, and those who are looking for more adventure, who are strong and ready to fight people for no good reason, they're going to prepare the ships for a party that is much, much smaller now, so that they can continue on to Italy. Finally. Before they go, though, they prepare the city they're leaving behind. They plow lots and various other things I don't care to understand. Things that one needs to do to prepare such a city to become, well, another big city. <laughs> they name it Ilium, they name the country Troy, and bam, there's new Troy. Meanwhile, Venus is worried for her son's fate. She watched as Juno rustled up that storm to take out Aeneas, and then used Iris to try to ruin things once again. Venus is worried for what Juno might do next, how she might continue to try to ruin Aeneas and his chances of reaching Italy and founding his oh-so-important and historic city. So, she calls on Neptune, god of the sea himself, to make her case. She complains to him about all of this, what Juno's been doing and how it isn't fair, and can he help her? Neptune agrees, saying he's been helping Aeneas this whole time, which frankly I don't understand, because Poseidon was definitely on the side of the Greeks through most of the Trojan War, but who's to say maybe I'm forgetting something, I'm really very tired. The point is, Neptune agrees now. He agrees to help Venus help Aeneas to prevent, as much as he can, Juno from continuing her hunting of Aeneas, her attempts to stop him, to kill him. And with that, Aeneas and the Trojans that will continue on to Italy set sail once again. Oh, nerds. I'm sorry this is a bit of a shorter episode. Frankly, I'm having trouble staying awake in the middle of the day as I try to write this. And then now that I'm recording it, it's it's 6 a.m. I have to go to work soon. But this is the last week of me doing this while working. So while this is a short episode, oh, you can look forward to some really good and exciting stuff coming your way in October when I take this full time. God, I'm excited. So many plans and schemes, you guys. So many plans and schemes. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this slightly briefer than normal episode. I will be back next week with I don't know what yet, but you just know you'll hear me on Friday as we continue on with the magnificent, the wonderful, the exciting Odyssey. Okay, not quite exciting yet because there's more Telemachus, but still, it's the Odyssey. God damn it. Thank you all. As usual, please rate, review, subscribe. I have daily update emails from a service that tracks charts and reviews. And let me tell you, when the email includes a review from you beautiful people, it makes my day a thousand times more enjoyable. I absolutely love reading them all. And I love you all so much for writing them in the first place. This is the coolest job on the planet. I can't believe it's mine. Really, I still can't. What the fuck is happening? Anyway, sorry, you're all the best. I'm so excited to bring you all what I'm going to bring you now that I have time and hopefully energy. Thank you. I am Liv and I love this shit. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was bought it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.